queuing. Welcome to From the Valley Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Wilshere. It's uh, the 1st of February 2019, so pinching the punch for the first day of the month. So we've, this is the 25th episode uh, of the podcast. We've got a, uh, an interesting character uh, here today, uh, Peter Lattimore from Lattimore Design. Welcome along, Peter. Thank you, Tim. Great to be here. Now, and I really, really appreciate uh, your time today in coming along and, uh, and sharing a bit of your story and sharing a bit of your insights on different things that are going on, so not so much in Brisbane, but also in your industry, the building industry, design, what you know, obviously building design, architecture, that type of thing as well. So it's really good to have you on. And um, so I guess the first thing we like to sort of start off with, uh, Peter, is just try to get a bit of a gauge of, I guess, early beginnings, where, you, where were you born, uh, a bit about your family life, mum and dad, brothers and sisters, that sort of thing. Okay, well, um I'm a building designer, which means I design buildings. Um, my early life was I was I grew up in the country. I was born in Warwick, Queensland, which is southern Queensland. You know, it's in the um, Southern Downs district now. Um, my father was um, a school teacher at one teacher schools, and my first memories are of being a child at. Gladfield, which is in the Gladfield Valley, which is between Cunningham's Gap and uh, Warwick, and so how far is that from Warwick? That's it's well, Cunningham's Gap is around about uh, twenty minutes from okay. from Warwick, um, and the Gladfield Valley is literally just over the top of Cunningham's Gap, um, and I have a very early memory of my father coming back from school when I was, I think, about four. I can, I can picture that in my head. But I also have a very strong memory of my dad killing a snake in the backyard of the house. This was a house that had no power. So um, no power. So no power, no, no sewage, nothing. So I grew up having a thunderbox in the backyard <laughs> until I was around, and we moved to Hagsley, which is outside Ipswich, when he was a teacher there too. So I, I remember... Um, no power at Gladfield, no sewage, and then we had Hagsley. We did have um, power, which was nice. We didn't have a telephone. I remember that being installed. So I, I often think about my life going from having zero technology, nothing, to full on everything, and the changes that 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 has wrought is quite amazing. And I often am fascinated how we are so adaptable as humans. So that's. That's something. I have five brothers and sisters. Wow. Yes, I'm from a big family. Yeah, Yeah, it's a Catholic family, you know, the usual thing. Um, My mum was a really brilliant um, um, sewer, uh, brilliant cook, Um, and she she actually ran classes in the schools for sewing. The school that you went to. Yeah, yeah, because it was a one-teacher school. You know, they had to do... They had to be innovative. It was... Yeah, that that was really good. so I was, I was lucky to have parents who instilled a, a really strong work ethic in me. Um, I was also lucky they made me a happy person. And I've used that a lot in my life, particularly having to deal with um, challenges, particularly my medical condition. And being happy is a good thing. Mm. So, and I've definitely used that in business. So, so with the medical condition, if you want to talk about that, you're certainly yeah. welcome to. Yeah, I will. Um, tell us a bit about, how, you know, when that sort of, how that sort of happened to you, and what 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 sort of effect. Well, from what sort of age? From quite young, actually, in my early twenties, 
um, I noticed I couldn't pull the clutch in on the motorbike with my left hand. I thought, that's a bit weird. And it just came on gradually. Anyway, the short version is I was diagnosed with uh, motor neuron disease in 1991, which meant I would be dead by 1995. No question. I didn't die, Mm. obviously. 2019, here we are. Yeah, it was quite funny. Um, That's not a fun episode, by the way, being being diagnosed with motor neuron. It takes a long time. They do horrible tests, and they are really awful tests. They are painful, and they inject stuff in you, and they they give you electric shocks. It's just it's horrible. I don't like it. I'm never getting those tests again. Um, Anyway, 2003, I think it was, um, went back to the neurologist, and she said, jokingly, it was all quite funny, really, but she said, oh, you're not dead. And, And it turned out she just changed the diagnosis to spinal muscular atrophy which basically just describes what's wrong with me. So I have um, gradually weakening muscles um, throughout my body. The lucky thing is um, it's extremely slow. It's a little like so what happens... So it takes a long time to really... In my, in my case, yeah. yes. Everybody else, literally, everybody else with this condition is dead in, within four to five years. Absolute yeah. max. Um, so I'm a little similar to Stephen Hawking because his came on early in his life, but it was very rapid deterioration, but then plateaued, and he was managed to exist for a long, long time in his wheelchair. But this this thing, it taught me a lot about people. Mm. Um, I learned that some people can't handle certain things, and I had to help them help me, essentially. Mm. Um, some friends just ran away, um, Others were extremely helpful, which was great. It's a real challenge for my wife because um, we couldn't have kids because I, I thought I'd be mm. dead. Mm. So we did. We How decided. many years have you in the, been married? Um, Sherry, isn't it? Yeah, Sherry. Yeah. yeah. Well, guess what? Today's our wedding anniversary. Oh, well, happy wedding anniversary. <laughs> Thank you. And it's 33 years, would you believe? 33 years. Wow, that's, that's really, really yeah. that's so excellent. It's been a challenge for her mm. because... She married someone who was extremely capable. Mm. I was physically unusual, mm. which is a part of how I think I've got through. Um, I've used my brain and my body to exist longer. Mm. Um, because of my training and design as well, I've learned to handle things differently. I can move around and do certain things that others would not normally think that they could do. Um, and it's helped, actually, mm. with my... My gifts that I was given by my parents, I call it. Mm. What's amazing to me, Peter, is that um, you, you know it's it's, it's it, you obviously got that um, you've got, and it, and it doesn't sort of hamper you being, you know, I guess as far as you're still able to, you know, be, you know, an owner of a small business here on the north side mm. of Brisbane, uh, you know, doing building design, which is it's a very it's a very sort of um, niche sort of thing as well. There aren't a massive number of building designers out there, and you're obviously very good at your craft, one of the best, uh, very well, uh, you know, known for that in Brisbane, probably oh, thank in, you, Tim. in Australia as well. Wider than that, and obviously, you know, it's reflective in you know you're a life member of the BDAQ. That's true. How did you know that? You got to do your research, but. Um, <laughs> But so that you're, you know, ha- having what you've got hasn't stopped you from achieving a lot of stuff and it hasn't stopped you from uh, living a happy life, you know, not, not every single day, I'm sure, but 
you know, I think mm. you're a happy guy, you know, most of the time. Well, I say that's one of the gifts of my parents. I'm lucky to be um, who I am. Um, I've got to tell you, I love waking up every morning because I'm not dead. Yeah. Um, and that's a good yes. way to start the day because it then your, your life is positive from the moment you wake every day. Mm. And I have so many things that have been positive to me over the years. Um, and by giving things and doing things and being part of stuff, mm. it gives back to you. Like you doing these podcasts, it's, it's an ex- a really good example mm. of how you can achieve benefit to everybody, mm. but it also enhances your own life. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a re- it's a really good principle. Yeah, excellent. So I guess going back a few steps, so tell us a bit about uh, before you got to your 20s, your, teen- your teenage years, uh, whereabouts were you living then and what, okay. what, sort of did, you, what did you get up to? What well, mischief? <laughs> I was never, I've never been into mischief. I'm a very um, ordered, careful person. Um, I tend not to do anything silly. Um, but I can have some fun times. Anyway, um, <laughs> um, in, in my grade eight year, which so I would have been turning 13 that year, we moved to Toowoomba. From the Warwick area? From, no, from actually Hags League, which is just west of Ipswich, okay. ten, 10 miles west yep. of Ipswich. Um, Toowoomba's a great town, I've got to mm. tell you. It's just fabulous, and it's, and it's really going gangbusters now. It's really an excellent place to live, mm. work, and if you wanted to set up a business there, it's probably ideal. Mm. Um, it's had its moments in time. It's, mm. it's, it really has been a slow town often, and of course, when I left high school there, the first thing you want to do as someone who's leaving high school in Toowoomba is get out. <laughs> um, but that is so different now. It's amazing. Yeah, love the, love the town. Um, so I went to two schools in Toowoomba, both Catholic, St. Joseph's, which is on the east side, and then I went to St. Mary's on the west side because mm. St. Joey's only went to grade 10. Um, I was a very high achiever at school, um, and that was encouraged by my parents, no question. I ended up at the end of it getting the highest score you can get at school, um, which that's like a ducks top thing, isn't it? Or yeah, not like ducks. ducks, but it's the old TE score that we had in the seventies. Um, you know, I'm a little, I'm a little old, um, so this was in 1975. I ended up with a TE score of 990, which is the very highest you can mm. achieve. But I loved it. I was, I just loved learning. It was just so much fun. Um, I was also a reasonably good tennis player, which I really loved, and I still love. If I could ever play it again, I would, but I can't. But that's all right. Um, do, you, do you like watching the Oh, I, lo- I love watching the Australian Open. Okay, it's, yeah. Um, it's just, God, those, those people, they're just phenomenal. They're men, men and women who so play. Who, do you, who are your favourite tennis players? Um, well, like everybody, Roger Federer. Mm-hmm. It, it's, Swiss, yeah. Yeah, it's a bit hard not to. Um, and I'm very fond of that Osaka world number one right now she's what an amazing lady she's mm. just come from such a again work ethic mm. i loved it when she said what's your motivation someone asked her and she said i want to please my parents mm. now that's a really lovely way to answer the question because it means that your your motivation is not driven by money or achievements necessarily um so i found that really interesting so i had a really good high school time um i'll i'll never forget my father was a very practical person and loved working on timber and painting houses would you believe Mm. so i remember paying the house in toowoomba it's a bloody huge 
timber house. So you painted it back in the... We painted yeah. it twice yeah. during my high school years. Yeah. Um, but I loved it. Yeah. And I've got this crazy story that the whole family went away up the, up to the Sunshine Coast and for some reason I was left there. And my father said to me, right, son, um, you can paint the roof while we're gone. <laughs> but I was fine with it. I loved yeah. it. So I was yeah. up there in the heat, but oh, it was great fun. Yeah. So, um, but during my high school years, I got fascinated by the geometrical drawing class that we had to do. Technical drawing, it was called prior to that. Yes. And I just, just loved it. And I couldn't help it. I just got top marks literally the whole time. Um, and in fact, I used to run the classes sometimes when the teacher wanted to break, um, which is pretty amazing. But I took that fascination into university where I went and studied uh, architecture which was enlightening interesting was that UQ or yeah I was at UQ okay, I um, and I did the three-year degree which is, uh, back then was called Bachelor of Design Studies mm-hmm. but because I did so damn well at school um, I won a scholarship from the Queensland government at the time it was called the Queensland Works Department so you got to um, be paid I got paid a little bit more than um, um, Tease at that stage, which was, I think, it was $39 a week for Tease, but I got $44 a week. That was enough for me to go to movies once a week and pa- put petrol in my motorbike. So I, I love that. Um, and because of my scholarship, I had to work every holidays, which was always the middle of the year and the end of the year. And that was quite a bit of a shock to a young person you know suddenly you got you don't get holidays you're going to work so I think I got two weeks off a, a year um, for three years running um, so you just you just full-on study and then full-on working and um, and then I finally finished the, the course which was I got to tell you it's a fascinating time being at uni and particularly a course like architecture because you're in a very small group you know you're, it was under 35 people so you got to be really friendly with everyone. You all helped each other. And that's where I learned quite a bit about collaborative um, activity, particularly um, in this industry of, in my case, building design. But I've also learned you apply that to literally everything mm. and you can achieve a lot more than just being an individual. Oh, definitely. Collaboration is definitely, in, you know, even in our industry, what we, we collaborate with, with the competition to, you know, to, be, to better both our ourselves at the end of the day we we certainly uh, do a bit of that that's for sure so it's it's, i find it very helpful and just you know and then you also got that mutual respect type thing as well yeah it it's something i think that a lot of people should bring to business um the idea of competition i think is misunderstood um the word competition itself is not a good way to, to to understand what you should do um like because of my heavy involvement in so many things such as um, my association, so many of us have collaborated. There's no competition. We all get yeah. together and we chat and we learn and we, we teach each other. And those that don't get involved in it end up, I think, failing to some extent because you're, you're not understanding what your competitors, let's say, we can, you can use that word. But the thing is that you can contribute to each other's benefit you can advance your own profession greater. Um, so that's something I definitely learned from um, being at uni in that tight-knit group. It was really fascinating. 
But at the end of that, I had to go. There's a year out in architecture at UQ. So you, in between three years and two years, you have to do a year out. As long so, as like a practical sort of Yeah, you had, to, you had to work somewhere. Mm. And if you couldn't get work there, you, you didn't get to go back. Um, so I was, you know, I was working for a full year at Works Department. And guess what? I was in the, the um, schools section of the architectural branch. And I got to draw. God, it was boring. Um, it was just horrible. Um, demountable buildings. Now, if you're old enough, anyone in Queensland will remember the demountable buildings at all the schools. They had a really particular design, but I'll never forget this. Me and another fellow who was from uh, QUT at the time, we thought, bugger this, we're going to have some fun. And we attempted to change the colours of them, and it didn't work. We put on, I think I did a bit of blue and a bit of yellow or something, whatever it was, <laughs> and, and hands did some other colours and and they would have looked great. Oh no. Came back, the clerk at work said, Oh, we don't have those colours and all they had was Mission Brown. And that and I'll never forget I can't stand Mission Brown. And and I still <laughs> and I joke with clients, uh, you can have any colour except Mission Brown. Um, but at the end of that I was going, I can't stand this. I could feel myself changing and becoming a lazy, boring individual and I thought, this is not right. So I end up um, surrendering the um, scholarship cost a fortune over a few years to pay it all back because they insisted on that but it was the best thing I did because I went off and did photography um, at um, at the time Seven Hills College of Art because I was fascinated by photography all the way through uni um, um, me and a few others we, we even had a dark room would you believe at the UQ mm. um, so we did lots and lots of printing of photos and it was great fun um, but that taught me even more things because I could see the world a little differently. Um, and as a designer, I joke that I have what I call a 3D brain. Yeah, I remember you mentioned you've got a 3D brain. It's, um, and that's something that certainly sticks out that, that you, you can see that there's something in you know, the way that you work that you, you've got that or, you know, equivalent yeah. of. So tell us about the 3D brain. Well, um, you can develop it, but in the main, you have to be born with it. Mm. Um, most builders, designers, architects, um, um, industrial designers, you know, it, it's across the board. Um, most of us have the ability, we can't help ourselves. So if you start talking or someone's describing something to you, our heads instantly imagine it in full three dimensions, in full colour, and being able to spin around it and walk through it. Mm. Um, now, I thought this was normal. Turned out it's not. Um, so in my you know, teenager years, going into early 20s, when you, you just go, huh, don't you understand what I'm saying? Um, can't you see that? And of course, you now, I now realise, you know, it's only about 10 to 20% of the population that can do this. Um, so this is why um, things like the three-dimensional software that I'm, a, I'm a, um, an expert in now, um, it's a really major tool. And this is where technology is a great thing mm. in our profession. And I battle sometimes with it because so many so people stick with 2D and they just shouldn't. Yeah. How long has Revit been around for? Is that what you took reference yeah. to? Yeah. Revit, the software, which is an Autodesk product, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, they actually bought it from a university in the States. And this was in the mid-'90s. Mm as far as I remember. 
But I started using it in 2002. I was one of only, I think, 10 early adopters in Brisbane of it. I just saw it as, oh, this could be fun. Oh, lordy, lordy, that was a mistake. It took me three years every night to learn it backwards. And my wife, Sherry, says to me, she was a revit widow for that three years. Yeah. I was just doing it, you know, two, three hours every night. But, but because of that, um, I learned so much faster and was able to get in the nitty-gritty of it. It's a really dense piece of software. If, if you imagine um, gaming software, mm. but actually being the one in the background having to program it, mm. that's kind of what Revit's like, but in a building sense. So it's, it's really intense. Mm. Um, but the thing is, it's not easy to get into. You've got, it takes a long time for someone to become a, a reasonable practitioner, and that's why I invented the second business. Yeah, which, yeah. Which basically is like an add-on to Revit or yes. something, something of that effect. So, I guess early working life before you, before Lattimore Design was a thing. Tell me about some of those early jo- other jobs that you would have had leading okay. up to Lattimore I, Design. Well, um, the the best part of this, he's still a friend. Um, um, photography, what doesn't make money. So, um, after about eight months of not working and studying photography, I thought, ah, oh, better do something. I applied to an ad. Turned out it was a steel detailing firm. Um, Graham Mannix uh, is the owner, was the owner. Um, Graham sat me down and he looked at drawings I brought in and said, right, you can start on Monday. And this was a Friday. And I said, but I've never done steel detailing. And he said, and he recognised that course, being an architecture person, I had a 3D brain. So would you believe the very first thing he threw at me was detailing the stairs for the Inogra train station and I, I love this, this part of it because they're still there, yeah. those stairs and, and no one else in the office could comprehend how to turn a three dimensional object into two dimensional drawings to then be bolt, you know, gone off and fabricated bolted together and turned into a 3D yeah. thing so I was called the shit kicker by everyone else in the office because I'd gone to done architecture, so I was a, also called a wanker, which was so <laughs> hilarious. Um, but the, the joke I've le- I had ever since then was I went from being someone in the profession where you had to wear angel wings and fly over everybody as, a, you know, as an architecture person, um, dictating to everyone, to the very, very bottom of the ladder. A detailer of steel is you know, at the bottom of it. And I learned from this the very thing that was so important to me with my documentation later, don't treat everyone else in the profession poorly because that's a sad, terrible thing to do. Mm-hmm. Your workers, others, contractors underneath you or influenced by you, they depend on your ability to project the building onto paper and you've got to tell people and help them. But I love doing that steel detailing. I made so much money because okay. I... I was three times faster than literally anyone else in the office. I don't know why. I just was good at it. And Graham would say, here, you, you, they were B1 sheets. They're bigger than A1, so they're pretty large. You got paid 10 bucks a sheet. Yeah, we're talking... Back in the day, that's, a, that's quite a lot of money. Oh, in 1970... No, 1980. End of 1980, this was. Yeah. That was a fair bit of money. And I could do that quite fast. So I'd be sent off. I worked from home on a drawing board, and he'd give me a roll and say, "Here, this is, this is the next job." I'd go off, 
A week later, I bring it back, hand it to the checker. I get another roll, off I go. Um, and then I, each time I came back, I'd, had to co- I'd have to correct the, any mistakes that were on the previous set of drawings. <clears throat> but it was quite funny because I'd walk in and Jim, the, the uh, checker, would say to me, uh, Peter, I only found one thing on those 12 sheets. Um, it'll only take you one minute to fix. And I loved that because I was... that, And so it was an efficient way to earn the money. And mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I had, a, I had a good time then. Um, <clears throat> but then several series of crashes occurred in, yeah, because we were dealing with a lot with mining. Mm. Um, so the industry's sort of going up and down. Oh, it, and it's, done it, it's done it throughout my entire career. Yeah. I think I've hit number eight so far mm. of some sort of downturn. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's a challenge. Sorry, am I going on too far? No, no, you're right. Keep going. All right. Um, so a lot of steel detailing. And then um, because of the connections that Graham had, um, other people heard about me. And so I started doing concrete detailing and engineering drawings for Bornhorst and Ward, who were a very excellent engineering firm at the time. They're still around. Um, but still around well, okay. But not under the name. The, the owners of that time aren't around anymore. Yep. Um, and I was pretty good at that too. And I could see things in 3D each time, which was different to everyone else in the office. Mm-hmm. So any complicated building that came through the front door was suddenly jumped, yeah, dumped on me. Um, so the engineers would end up using me to try to understand the building. Mm. And I'd drop, and there's a building down at Cleveland, the most complicated roof you've ever seen. It's, it's, it's actually a poor design, but I made it work with a lot of careful thinking. And this is in the days before you could have even a three-dimensional calculator. So I, because of my high-end ability at maths, you know, sine, cos rules, trigonometry to the max. Um, so and it does I, come in handy on trigonometry, everybody. Oh, in my case, it was. <laughs> um, so I, but I loved that. I yeah. was. It was just. It was just like playing games for me. It was yeah. just phenomenal fun. Yeah. Um, and during all of this, inevitably, someone says, "Oh, you're a drafts person. Um, can you draw up my house?" And of course, the answer is, "I'll have a go. Why not? I studied architecture. Why not?" Um, and then gradually what happened was I was doing that here and there and that was very part-time. But then another crash came in 89-90 when Graham and another one and me were doing a hell of a lot of support for large subcontractors. And because I was doing this and the crash came, so I had to switch on to be a full-time building designer. So it's pretty hard to ramp up a business from almost nothing to something. Um, Definitely would be, especially yeah. in the after that early nineties. Yeah, but oh, sorry, early eighties, yeah. late eighties. Late eighties, yeah. <laughs> but someone I've known ever since nineteen eighty nine. His name's John Rich, a great, a really great builder. Um, he's a mechanical engineer. He's now semi-retired. Um, he wandered into our our joint office that we had in Tuong, and he'd just seen a set of my plans at Finlayson's who were based in uh, Milton at the time. And he came up, just wandered into the office and said, Oi, are you Peter Lattimore? And I said, yes. Um, I've seen your plans. Can you help us get some this complicated job done? And just because of that, and a couple of others who got to know of me, it ramped up really fast. 
um, to the point where I couldn't keep up. And so I, I had an engineering draftsman I knew, and he helped me do um, subcontracting. So I had this little system back back then. It was all on board. Yeah. Um, and the couriers would come and pick up stuff from me that I'd marked up. Off it would go to Bernie, and he would draw it up. Back it would come. And we just did this literally day after day. And he'd do this at night, and it paid off his house. Um, and then I got to know others, and we, we shifted it into AutoCAD, um, which is very 2D. Um, but that was a good challenge too. I loved it. And had other people working with me, and then just gradually, 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 it, it increased to the point where I ended up with employees. Can I tell you, employees are better than contractors because they stick with you, you build a relationship. Um, having subcontractors to particularly a, a building design business has its benefits, but it also has some pretty major um, down you know, downside. I, I would really encourage people try to be an employer not a, a head contractor of yeah, subbies. Yeah, it's certainly, you know, I agree with those sort of sentiments. Yeah, definitely you've got your advantages and disadvantages of, of each, but, you know, the employees are there, the employees are part of the furniture. Yeah. And, and then subcontractors, not really, you know. Yeah, and the, the trust that you can build up between each other, an employer and employee, can be really considerable. And if you're a decent employer, you can... Um, like I call it the parenting principle that um, not a, you're not a father or mother but the thing is you should apply that element of the human condition to being an employer you know having care being supportive being a true mentor you know all the classic stuff that we hear all the time but it, it often isn't applied enough and that's another thing you know my, my character you know I was born with it mm. um I have this this ability to be a nice person, mm. and I don't, and I, I can't take credit for that. But what I can take credit for is using it. Yeah. Um, so, using your own talents in ways that you don't even think of is is mm. is, is part of business, I think. Mm. Definitely. So, I would say obviously you've you've been Lattimore Design's been around for about thirty years or just over. Ticked, in in the vicinity of yeah. So, in that yeah, close to thirty years, I think I, I looked it up. So that's, that's a long time, and obviously you said you've gone through a lot of peaks and troughs in mm. your in your professional career, and obviously in your part of that would be you know what's been happening with Lattimore Design over the last thirty years as well. So mm. had you know a few quite a few employees, then back to working by yourself with employees, perhaps mm. along the way the support of your your lovely wife. Um, I guess I mean what what have you sort of you've obviously you learn a lot of things obviously being you know, running your own business, you would have learned a lot of things and you've shared a bit of wisdom already. Um, do you think, uh, I mean, obviously, what's what do you found the easiest way to deal with adversity when things don't quite go so well in, um, when it comes to the business? Like, all of a sudden, nobody's wanting, you know, no one's buying your services for a period of time or there's a lag in something going on. How, how do you sort of deal with that? Well, as I said, I have a design brain. <clears throat> So I have a natural ability to think outside the box. Mm. You know, it's a trite statement, but it actually means a lot. If you can apply, in my case, a design brain to a, a problem, you will come up with a solution that might be surprising. Um, most people are linear thinkers. 
but I have the ability to be mathematical linear as well as random. Now, by that I mean <clears throat> you basically throw your brain into chaos and go, what have I not thought of? Being able to think about what's missing mm. can sometimes be the way to, to get there. That's how I often describe to people. Um, that if you can see it from a different angle or several different angles, it's like imagine brainstorming with you know, 10 people. Do that inside your own brain. That can sometimes create this, the, the beginnings of an answer. You'll never get the full answer in, in adverse, adversity, as you say, but you'll begin to get a clue. And it could just mean, oh, dear, I'm going to have to sack someone because mm. we've got no work. And that has happened to me yes. a few times. But through that, you might come up with some other option that you hadn't considered. Like in my case, one really good example of having got through this was um, the crash that happened to all of us during 2011. It was a really bad six months, the end of that. They just Suddenly the market just seemed to disappear. There was just nothing happening mm. for anybody. I remember the Gold Coast just literally stopping and yes, all those all, all those building designers down there, we even ended up with a suicide, which was horrible. Um, so I'll never forget that. Um, but by that stage, I'd become a really acknowledged expert in Revit. And it dawned on me that, you know, throw the brain into chaos, figure out something. <clears throat> and I went, hang on, I can do something here. And I went to a meeting of architects and... They, and the, the leader of it, who's now a partner with me in the business, this other business, said, oh, just sit in the corner. So I did. At the end of it, he said, see Peter in the corner over there? He's a Revit expert. Oh, my Lord. Guess what happened? Half the room suddenly was around me saying, Peter, help us. We don't know how to use this damn thing. Yeah. And from that, the, opportunity. Yeah, the light bulb had already been turned on, mm. but then it started glowing like crazy. And so <clears throat> from that, <clears throat> and it's now about to launch like crazy, we have um, a business that is a support system to an architect or building designer. Mm. And <clears throat> it's, and I've come up with ideas and thoughts that really should be in the software. And it's amazing what you can think of using a chaotic brain. So <clears throat> I guess that's the answer. Yeah, that's, that's certainly a good example of um, yeah, reinventing something uh, that's that's there and saying okay well it can be a lot better and I'm going to make it a lot better and I'm going to be able to share it with everybody else mm. who, who who uses this uh, all the other you know building designers collaborative working that's in right. a way um, you know not being discriminatory towards the competition helping the com helping everybody so that every so that the industry can progress and and mm. and also evolve uh, with technology with mm. you know, innovation um, you know and and that it just keeps going from there so. Um, what are, I mean, what are some of the other instances, I guess, sort of going through the 90s and then the, the noughties, I guess they call it. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the other things that, that you remember um, that were sort of milestone, you know, milestone type events or situations for, your, for Lattimore Design and, and yourself maybe? Um, well, during the 90s, um, I essentially had subcontractors um, and only one employee. Um, she was an admin assistant. Um, the subcontractors were valuable, but 
I and it helped the business survive because I didn't have to use them all the time. But the trouble was I also couldn't advance. I couldn't increase the workflow much. And to some extent, I was like the sticking point. Everything, because of being a building designer or an architect, there's no difference. You have to be responsible for every line on a piece of paper. You are, you are the bunny. You can't delegate everything. It's not possible. But if you employ someone who uh, gets to the point where you don't have to check it as much, that's a really good trick. So during the 90s, with all the subbies I was using, um, I was doing some pretty interesting things. This is all on AutoCAD. And I was doing the design, then I'd hand it on to someone who do the work and drawings. I still have to check them, but it became an efficient way of operating. Um, and mostly I was doing housing, no question, it was mostly houses, um, new houses, but I also got into a lot of renovations. And this is where I really took off because no one was able to think about how to use an existing building better mm. at the time. Um, and I became, well, I always was interested in the, the old Queenslander. Now, my understanding of that is way beyond most in the industry. I actually know how they're put together and what makes them structurally sound and why they are better buildings in some ways. Um, mm. That, and then it became a niche market in a sense that people started to recognise that someone could do a better job than just sticking a deck on the back of a building. Mm. Um, I was the innovator of, um, at the time, a floating roof. People would say, um, oh, we have to cut in the roof to add this and do that and the other. And I said, hang on, if we add the deck this way and then put a lifted roof mm. over the existing building, it cost half as much yeah. but produced twice the impact. So it was like a double-double you know, factor. Um, so using the chaotic brain again, you know, you can be innovative. Mm. Then um, AutoCAD was frustrating the hell out of me because I just couldn't get what I could see in my head on mm. a piece of paper. So Revit appeared, you know, gradually, and I thought, this is it. And at the same time, I started to employ people, having recognised that that was the best way forward, and it jumped like crazy. Um, being able to do a proper renovation in full 3D and doing it well, oh, that was new. No one was doing that. Um, using the software properly, which no one seemed to understand, again. Um, so very quickly, you become the person that people want to talk to. Mm. So th what I'm, I guess what I'm saying is um, design is all about innovation. But it's also about understanding the detail. And if you can put the two together, like you've got to be able to think broad as well as detail as a designer. You can't be fixated on one or the other. Mm. Um, and if you can only do one, then you're, not, you're just useless. Mm. Um, your, your firm will fail. Mm. Um, so I employed people who are able to follow that principle. Mm. And mentoring them, and the beauty of having employees, they give you ideas that you hadn't thought of. So you innovate together. So more collaboration. And, Again, yeah. that collaboration thing. It, mm. It's a common theme this morning, isn't it? Anyway. It seems to be. Um, so I, get, what, talk a bit of, I want to talk a bit about a couple of things, but um, 
what, what I'd sort of admire about you is your ability to, you know, in a networking group like the Kedron Brook Business Group, which, you, you know, you're a founding, I guess you're a founding person of, of that, one of the founding people. Yes. We were there from the early days. Prior to that, it was the Wilston Grange Business uh, Group. Community, I think. Something like that. Yeah. Um, which, was, which was excellent at the time. Which was, that was, and that's how I first met um, yourself, probably through that particular group, going to some mm. networking breakfast there. Man, I love the Kendrick Book Business Group. I go to nine or ten of these a year. Yes. I love to speak at it, but I like the way you come in, you know, three or four times a year and, and get involved heavily in, you know, whether it's an MC or whether it's getting some people on their feet and talking. Uh, finding out, out a bit about them, just you know their whole current affairs style, even or you know interview style, which is mm. some of those things. Getting you know you yeah. can probably see that in the in these podcasts if you listen to them as well. Yeah, I I, I love the interviewing thing. It's so much fun. It is so much fun. You get to find out, and this is this is why what I love you know interviewing people like yourself to find out stuff that I'm never going to know otherwise. Um, what sort of I mean is that something you've always been good at being able to sort of uh, get your feelings out and heard. The confidence. I mean, 2019 is my theme year. Is confidence. I guess that's a good one. I um, like that. The reason there's a reason for that. Um, there's a song that won the Triple J's Hottest 100, um, Ocean Alley, just last Sunday. That's titled the song "Confidence," ah. and I called this winning, you know, back in December. And as soon as we clicked into 2019, I said 2019 is the year of confidence. Oh, that's, that's a really so, good idea. I like that, Tim. Well so done. That's, that's, so the theme's going to hang. You're gonna, it's going to be hashtag all year for me, confidence, okay? So that's... Mm, that's good. Um, but yeah, going back to your abilities in being able to be a good public speaker, because you are a great public speaker, when did you first get involved in public speaking, presentations, all that type of thing? Well, as I have said to everybody, no one is a natural-born public speaker. You have to learn it. I certainly agree with that. Um, yeah, it's not something that we can do. Now, anyone who now there are sorry, that's not entirely true. Some people are better yeah, at it naturally, yeah, though. Naturally, now extroverts um, can be initially a good public speaker, but they are not the best public speakers. The very best are people like me, and I suspect you, Tim. We are introverts. Those that learn to be a good public speaker as an introvert become the best by far. Now, I've studied this to a great extent because of my struggles initially to become a public speaker. And sharing your knowledge here, that's excellent. Yeah. yeah. The, the trick is watch comedians, stand-up comedians. They are the very best example of good public speaking. They're able to ad-lib, they're able to think on their feet, but they have techniques that the rest of us should learn from. When I first had to do a public speech, I was frightened like crazy. Did you know that public speaking is up above fear of snakes? Um, <laughs> yes. um, but th what I learned, um, the second one I had to do, was presenting a church design to a very large community meeting. It was over 100 people. And, you know, I was freaking out. It was not going to be easy. But I did it. And you know what I worked out afterwards? All it was, and here's your word, confidence. I knew what I was presenting backwards. I could answer any question confidently, accurately, with great um, you know, explanations. And after that, I thought, holy hell, that was so much fun. And all it was was knowing your subject. And, and the other thing was, 
halfway through it, I remember someone, I read this thing about pull your shoulders back, put your head up, act confident. Good word, Tim, I like this. Um, Act confident, you will be confident. And there's a whole bunch of tricks with public speaking. I've actually presented on this, as you saw me once, um, um, at a Christmas function for the, for the, for the group. Um, all you've got to do is just act like you're confident. People will think you are. Before you know it, you are. And off you go. You're just, yeah. you're just rolling along. Yeah. Um, don't read anything. Ignore PowerPoint. Don't use it. If you have to, you, you use it just for big pictures. Never, ever... Just don't put much text on a screen. Oh, it drives me balmy. And people are reading that. Oh, it's horrible. Um, the best way to be a public speaker is understand your subject. Don't try to follow your notes exactly. And just go with it. Mm. Look at people. Mm. See their reactions. The other thing is, everyone forgets this, as soon as you stand up to do your public speech... Everyone in the room expects you to know what you're talking about. You are the expert. They've already given their approval to you. All you've got to do then is just act. Mm. You know, learn a bit of acting. That's why I say talk, mm. you know, watch the comedians. Mm. They Have are you ever so taken, pl- any, taken any acting school classes or anything? No, like I've just, no. I just watch them avidly. Yeah. Um, I read books by them occasionally. Um, yeah. um, as long as I'm a student of history, but I... You can learn so much by just watching the better people at it. Um, and being a decent public speaker opens doors like you wouldn't believe. Um, I do, twice a year I do home shows, yeah. um, get up there and gabble on for 45 minutes or two hours if they'd let me, but they, yeah, they won't let me do that. Um, but you just, you just impart your knowledge. And as long as you're topical and you're not boring... Um, in fact, you can be topical about boring subjects too. You mm. just got to enliven it. Mm. Um, eye contact, um, standing tall. Mm. You know, literally, just pulling your shoulders back is a great start. Mm. Um, anyway, I could go on about that for too long. No, it's it's, it's really good to hear. You know, your, your point of view, and it's it's something that uh, you know, if if the listeners are sort of listening to that, you definitely can get something out of. You know, a bit of inspiration there, in my opinion, in order to be able to, you know, become confident. Yeah. You know? Well, I can say I've I've watched you over the years, and you're no different to anybody. Yeah. All of us learn after doing it. Yeah. The key is find a form in which you feel safe, mm. and start with it. <clears throat> Don't do it with your family, by the way. Do it with people who will give you feedback. Yeah, and sort of uh, impartial feedback, obviously, is, is mm. very very important as well. Tell us a bit about, um, I mean, one of your, you know, obviously your niche at the moment is, you know, renovations and in, in, in Queenslanders and designing, building design mm. for those types of projects, um, I guess, is a niche mainly now, isn't it? So tell us about the future of the Queenslander. At, at some point, you know, the Queenslanders are going to get too old and they're going to have to get all knocked down and there's going to be something that's going to have to sort of replace them as far as design What's what's the what is is there a thing called the new Queenslander or what what, what um, tell me about that? Um, we haven't got five days. <laughs> um, it would take that long to answer that question, but I'll I'll try to do a short version. I'm going to take you to task though. Um, the Queenslander is going to be around for a long time. Yeah, they were built well enough to last. There's a thing Definitely, in yeah. there's a thing in buildings 
if you know your stuff, as soon as a roof leaves a building, the building will collapse quickly. Mm. If roofs stay on buildings, they will last basically pretty much forever mm. um, as long as they're maintained. Now, the Queenslander is iconic. It's one of the rarest forms of vernacular architecture in the world yeah. that has such iconic nature. So they're important to be kept. In fact, I get really upset when, when, they, I, get when they get knocked down. Yeah. Um, it doesn't matter what the council does. Nasty people come along, will burn them, knock them down. They'll pay the fine. The council are used to this. Um, our local council is fighting one at the moment, um, literally around the corner from me. Um, they, but you are right. They, they were good designs at the time. People forget that a Queenslander is actually an early form of a kit home. You would you'd go to the State Advances Corporation or the bank. They all have these books. I'll have design number 63. That'll, that'll cost you £620. It was fixed, fixed numbers. It was just brilliant system. So you went to the bank, got the money. Then you employed a builder who went to the local hardware and said, I'm building number 63. They would package together everything that was needed for the house off it would go on a you know jalopy or really old days a, a, a bullet drawn dray um, and that would contain all the VJ walls all the weatherboards all the framing all the rafters somewhat pre-cut by the way um, and all the sash windows all came to site everything and the builders assembled these buildings based on the plans and they got so good at it they were they were really well put together things so that's why they're going to last. Mm. And people also don't realise some of them have gone through cyclones and survived. Yeah. The essence of them is they are brilliant. They're a membrane structure, floor, walls and roof and ceiling. Mm. Even skew nails. You put all that together the way they did, the thing is strong. It's mm. amazing. Mm. Um, but going back to your question, um, the new Queenslander, I despair of what happened from the 60s when we ended up doing what I call brick boxes, often without eaves as well. It came in in the 80s and 90s. That just depressed me. That was horrible. We live in the subtropics, for goodness sakes. And they basically people were buying volume. They were not buying design. So these, these really ugly cube-shaped buildings get put up and they don't respond to the climate. You're sticking a bloody great air conditioner in and you're, you're sucking in energy like nuts. It's mm. just terrible. Um, I wish we could legislate to have energy-efficient buildings, really decent energy-efficient buildings, but also that are ventilated. Mm. I despair of the software that for the energy efficiency. A six-star building is not really an efficient building mm. to that software because in our climate, you need to open the windows. You need air to flow through. Mm. You need higher ceilings, you need mm. ventilation, mm. you need orientation, and it goes on and on. Mm. But the right. new Queenslander, the governments of, of our area, you know, the Brisbane City Council and the state government are actually trying to encourage subtropical architecture, but it's not working because we've got the project builders and it's a round-robin thing that's not working. Um, and we also, I dislike the size of buildings why do you need a six-bedroom house with, you know, too many public rooms? Yeah. There's only, you know, there's only ever 
you know, four people max in most buildings. Mm. You can get by with a, you know, 150 square metre building. You don't need a 400 squares. Yeah. Um, and you can get by in a smaller block. You don't, yeah. Mm. Anyway, sorry, I'll be here too long. That's okay. A couple of, I've got a couple of uh, finishing uh, things to talk about. So, um, tell me about Brisbane. What, what, what do you like about Brisbane uh, that you've been here for as long as you have? Mm. Uh, do you see the rest of your future in Brisbane? Um, where do you think Brisbane's going to go in the f- yeah, future as well? In, in general, um, I like Brisbane because <clears throat> it's still a country town to some extent, and I love that that was here. Um, it's disappearing a little bit, but it's a series of villages which I really like. Now, that is a good living principle. Um, if people feel connected to their local community what, in their whatever way it is, that's better. Um, of course, we have the CBD, and that's necessary. The other valuable thing about Brisbane, which I often talk about, um, a town with two things is important, a river mm-hmm. and hills. Mm-hmm. The two in combination produce variation in real estate opportunities and therefore values. Brisbane has a great future always because of those two things. You go to the flats, as I call them, of Melbourne, it's pretty ordinary and the value of the real estate just stays very flat and doesn't actually... And, and there's not a lot, enough difference you know, from one street to the next um, until you move to that um, more northern region of Melbourne where it's more hilly. Um, Sydney, great example. Harbour plus hills. You go to the western suburbs, though, becomes a bit ordinary because it's so flat and there's no, there's no relieving element. Brisbane, it's, it's sheer geography is fabulous as a great place to live. And Mount Cutha, being so close to the CBD, again, an unusual geographic feature, Um, and the Moreton Bay, that's like a a heart and lungs to this city. Mm. A bit like the harbour of Sydney, but the harbour is actually small in comparison to the size of Sydney. Mm. Brisbane, though, huge Moreton Bay, Mm. all those islands out there, it's fabulous. So there's a lot of positives, I believe. I just wish we didn't have quite so many large lumps of units everywhere yeah I, I, yeah definitely i mean it seems to be a feature of you know urbanization you know obviously units and yeah that's a trouble we, we we have a growing population what else do you do yeah. i just wish the units were more responsive to the subtropics yeah if they were i'd probably be all for them mm. yeah for sure do you what do you think about the the actual weather um aspects of of, of living in brisbane do you find that it's too hot do you like the heat uh, what is it, what's it like for you in winter? I can tell you, I don't like the heat. Growing up in Toowoomba means I'm acclimatised to cooler weather. Um, I must admit, I love going to Tasmania and New Zealand because it's cooler. Um, Beautiful, yeah. Um, so my natural body type does suit cooler climates. But if we're honest about it, the heat in Brisbane is really only two to four months worth. The rest of it is ridiculously pleasant. Mm. How could you not like it? Mm. Um, so if you can get by, you know, past the hotter times, mm. the rest of the year is just so pleasant. Mm. Um, it's not a struggle. We do get cold in winter. It, yeah, and if you're in an old Queenslander with no insulation, it's freezing. Um, but, you know, for eight months of the year, it's pretty damn good here. Um, mm. And, you know, it has a major influence on people's characters. If you, if you 
and I, as I'm a student of people. I, I, underst- I love to understand their psychology because it's a, it's a big deal in, my, in what I do for my job. Um, the weather changes the way people act. If you're wearing lighter clothes and less of them, you're more casual, you're more approachable. Um, you're also going to say, oh, pleasant day today rather than saying in Melbourne, mm. oh, what a horrible day it is. That influences mm. your whole day. Mm. So mm. even though it can be hot, it can also be a really great way to encourage interaction. Here we go again, collaboration. Mm. Um, it's a natural instigator of mm. behaviour changes. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, I guess in your industry and the future of, of uh, building design in particular, where do you see that going in the future? Um, what sort oh. of technology? I mean, you've got a a three D brain. What do you, what technological advancements do you see in the not too distant future in your industry? Well, it's already happening. Beyond? It has already started. Um, in what I do particularly, there's a thing called BIM. It's building information modelling, which is effectively what Revit is. Um, the future of our industry is understanding that, and from beginning of concept right through to maintenance of the building forever. It's an interactive methodology. And as an industry, we have to respond to it. Australia's being a bit too slow, I've got to tell you. Europe has already leapt forward like crazy. Okay. Um, we're about five to ten years behind, and I'm one of the instigators in trying to get this happening. So the future of design is very much in full 3D with this BIM thing. The other side of it, though, is that is going to encourage more prefabrication of all buildings, not just, you know, some, but all of them. So the idea of a pod of a bathroom being stuck inside a house is on its way. Uh, Manufacture of buildings has already started away from sites. Um, It has come and gone. It's failed here and there because Australia is pretty traditional about putting up buildings. Um... 3D printing of buildings has already started. Mm. Um, it has its issues, no question, but in combination with prefab, and the beauty of this, as I see it, is the technology and the labour for it will stay local. Because even though you can probably get a bathroom built in China and yep. have it sent over on a ship, mm-hmm. the it adds up in cost. It's probably a bit too much. Yeah. We can be competitive within our own country if we can just get our governments behind us. The And prefabricating, like you can prefabricate an entire office building. Mm. You know, the um, um, the new form of building, like the one in the valley, um, made from you know, engineered timber. That is the future of buildings because it's lighter, it's quicker, and it's prefabricated mm. to the accuracy of half a millimetre. Mm. Now, that's phenomenal. Um so they go up so fast. Mm. And that technology is being reinvented in Australia mm. by Hein, which is just great news. Um, so I see so much more prefabrication coming. Um, and as an industry, we have to respond. We've got to learn. Mm. So I see it as an exciting future, even though I'm in the latter years of my career. Mm. There's no question that the future is exciting mm. if you just embrace it. Mm. And that's a lesson for all business. Yeah, for sure. So I guess um, one thing I haven't sort of asked you is, I guess, uh, who, who, I guess, are your inspirations 
uh, you know, to, I guess people get inspired by other people or by situations or have mentors that they, that they look up to and, and you, you know, sort of use them, use, you know, guidance from them to be able to further okay. either their careers or their business. Well, I guess here's an opportunity to, to, to okay, well, thank those people or to mention. Well, well you're one of them. No question. Really? Um, um, oh, yes, I've learned a lot from what, just watching you. Um, your, that word confidence, you keep coming back to it. Um, watching the level of confidence in you, also the humour that you bring to any public situation. Um, you have a natural ability to think of a funny line. Um, that's a good talent. Um, everyone in the local business group, I've got to say, I've learnt so much from them and I guess they'd say the same about me. But the thing is that just watching, listening and taking into your head what, what you see them doing or hear what they're saying. Um, every business person can help any other business person. It doesn't matter if you're in the totally different fields. Yeah, I agree with it's that really valuable. My mentors come inspiration. I've got to tell you, just watching yeah. buildings, just looking thinking about how they're doing it um, is a big thing for me. Um, I've, I would venture to say the inspirational architectural people yep. in the world to me are those that think really differently. Frank Lloyd Wright is, a, is an obvious one. Um, Le Cabusier was another fabulous French architect, just amazing. Um, but there's lots of engineers who can think out of out of the box, like the Kirilpa Bridge in Brisbane, which a lot of people don't like because they see it as a jumbled mess. But it, think, but yeah. but it's just the most amazing. If they just understood, it's a phenomenal engineering feat that thing, um, and just trying to understand the the forces of it, the tension and the compression elements of all those pieces in it. Mm. It's it's a lesson in how to think better. Mm. Um, Another thing that's an inspiration to me is just going to art museums. I was going to mention that because that's one of the things I was probably going to finish with here is um, when I was overseas recently on the three-week holiday, I went to quite a few art museums like uh, um, saw Picasso's in a, in a museum in uh, the Ludwig Museum in Cologne. That was Oh, lucky you. Um, I didn't even know that Picasso's were in this museum and there were, there were hundreds, of, hundreds of them. And then... In Amsterdam, you've got uh, the Van Gogh. Oh, <laughs> you know, the Van Gogh. Phenomenal. Um, Rembrandt House, you know, and um, yeah. So, and this guy, he was—he only painted for ten years, but and, did, and made no money at all out of it. Yeah, it's obviously yeah, all these uh, people down the line, but um, yeah. yeah, yeah, artwork. So, I guess does that sort of—is uh, that something that really? that you get a kick out of as oh, well very, is good artwork? Very much so. Mm. Um, just understanding how they can think mm. is so helpful because if they if you can follow their idea of doing something innovative and trying to figure out how they came up with that, it really can be inspirational. Mm. Um, the other thing to learn from it, almost every artist that we now know of as you know super famous, almost none of them made money out of it. The lesson there is perseverance. Mm. Keep trying. Keep going. Mm. If you really think you've got something right, keep trying. Um, and even if, you know, a lesson that I've learned from that in conjunction with other things is 
people who have struggles, um, like me with my condition, mm. you know, learning to live with it and get on with stuff, like artists have in Maine, um, that's a good thing to try to apply to your whole life and to business as well. Mm-hmm. You, yeah, adversity is a is a way to become better. Making mistakes is really mm. good. Mm. Um, learn to make less mistakes. You know, these are all valuable le- lessons. Uh, it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast today, uh, Peter Lattimore from uh, Lattimore Design. Very well known in our Kedron Book Business Group for having the shortest uh, elevator speech in history. <laughs> I'm Peter Lattimore. I'm a building designer. I design buildings. So that's that's his catch cry. Uh, but then he'll extend past that sometimes and tell us a bit of a story. But uh, mm. thank you very much for coming on uh, the show, uh, Peter. It's It's been inspirational to listen to. And I do really, really appreciate your time. And this will be uploaded today somewhere on the World Wide Web for everyone to listen to. Uh, any final words? Thank you, Tim. You're an inspiration yourself. Thank you very much. Thanks, listeners. It's uh, Friday the 1st, and that was From the Valley Podcast. Thank you very much.